When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Alan Parker said, Sometimes, with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritBlitz.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is Anthony Woodley. Hello. Hi there. Your second uh, visit to the uh, BritFlix Towers. It is indeed. Thank you for having me back. It is, it is. So is it, is it 2015 when we last talked then on, on a podcast? Oh, um... It was the carrier, yeah, wasn't it? It was for the carrier, yeah, which was my second film. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we're not going. We're not going to revisit that. That's just a bit of memory lane for uh, for the audience. Um, mm. But we're here to talk about your new film, The Flood. Um, do you want to do you want to tell people a little bit about that? What it is? Yeah. So The Flood is a uh, contemporary drama set around the refugee crisis, mm-hmm. and it's mm. pretty much a film about two people uh, sort of meeting in one room. And then understanding each other's lives a bit more. Uh, I wanted to make a film about uh, people sort of listening to each other mm-hmm. and, and try to understand where they've come from and where they're going. Because I think in this sort of world of Brexit we live in now, everyone's too quick to sort of pick a side and start shouting. Mm. I think once you get to that level, uh, no one really wins. Um, you know, Facebook's a great example of that. It's just a sort of echo chamber for hate, you know, mm. on both sides. You know, you know, we can't exclusively say it's one or the other. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't really have difference of opinion and everybody be right simultaneously, can you? Yeah, exactly. What's that saying? Uh, we, can, we can't both be right, but we can both be wrong. Mm. I think it's very true. And I just think it's... I think we've lost something along the way. And, I, and it is. It's the lost art of listening and, and trying to understand. And I think that's what I'm trying to bring back with this film, is, is sort of give these people, the refugees, uh, a name and a face, uh-huh. rather than have them as this sort of faceless horde, you know, hence the name The Flood. Yeah. And Cameron, I don't know if you famously remember, heard, he called them The Swarm at one point. And it's these derogatory sort of collective nouns. Um, so, yeah, so the idea is just... Here are two people on different sides of a fence. One of them is a refugee trying to get into England, and the other one is a hardened immigration officer. He's played by Lena Headey from mm-hmm. Game of Thrones mm-hmm. fame. And they both have very opposing opinions, but due to the nature of the situation, they're forced to sort of sit there and communicate with each other. And they both, well, you know, I hope that the audience realises that, you know, we both have stuff going on in our lives. And it's not as black as what and black and white as good and evil and let people in or don't let people out. And how can people see the film? Uh, so it's coming out in cinemas in Curzon, mm-hmm. uh, doing a distribution in the UK mm-hmm. uh, on June 21st. OK, and that's also what simultaneously it's also VOD, isn't it, as well? Uh, yes. So I believe it's Curzon on demand. And then I think there's a bit of a window before uh, physical delivery. So DVDs, things like that. Brilliant. How exciting. 
yeah, it's a bit of a dream, really, like to have Kurz on an artificial eye distributing your film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, given given obviously the nature of uh, and seriousness of the subject you're trying to tackle with this film, it's um, it's sort of like um, it, it gives it some some weight of authority that 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 the uh, the film does a good job of it. That Kurz and an artificial eye are, uh, are are wanting to let people see it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a very good benchmark for for, for the film and the, and the maturity of the subject as well. Because you know, Curzon are known for being incredibly good at picking uh, strong art house films, um, which have you know uh, sort of uh, resonance all around the world, not just in England. Indeed, indeed. Now, now this isn't the first film that you've done where uh, Helen Kingston is the screenwriter. Yeah. Um, so what? What's what's? How does that work between you and Helen? What stage do you come on board with the flood, or how how does it get? Or are you involved at conception? So uh, w- with this particular film, mm-hmm. um, uh, she came up with an idea to have because uh, there was an awful story in the news about these these guys who were stuck in a shipping container and. In, in the docks, I can't remember which docks it was, but anyway, they, a lot of them died and they were banging and screaming on this container to try and get out. Mm. It was a really harrowing, horrible story and, and Helen read it and she said, oh, this this feels like it could be a play, you know, because the nature of a shipping container, mm. it's like a locations. And I said, oh, no, that's not a play, that's a, um, a low-budget film you've got, <laughs> yeah. you know, having an independent UK film hat on. Mm. Uh, and then just, it's one of those things, besides talking about it and developing it and I was like oh wouldn't it be interesting if we sort of showed you know him getting on the lorry and then him getting off the lorry and then maybe where he's come from, and you know like all these sort of things and then you realize actually I've got a full feature film on my hands yeah uh, and it just sort of grew from there and the, the, the journey is just fascinating with you know these people take uh, you know this particular journey from Eritrea across the, the Sahara and then to Libya and then you know, on a on a like a dinghy crossing mm. the Mediterranean, you know, really dangerous stuff. Uh, and then like arriving in Europe and having to walk or hitchhike all the way across Europe to get to Calais and then arriving in this place which I can only describe as like Reading Festival on the sixth day, you know. Yeah. And sort of <laughs> gone home and it just it's just downtrodden and soggy and just just not a, a hospitable place for anyone to live in. And these people have been living there for years. But how? Uh, but think it, before we go into detail about about what what it is. But how how does the relationship work between you and Helen then? So you've you've kind of agreed this is a this is a um, this is a this this is there's enough there to develop into a film. So how what's the back and forward between you and Helen then to get it to a screenplay you can shoot? Yeah. So we were both living in London at the time, and mm-hmm. um, we were just doing drafts really and bouncing off each other and building it and stuff and. You know, she uh, she's very good at putting uh, sort of ideas on paper and making things, uh, you know, more coherent and, and, and more story structured and things, whereas I was sort of adding ideas and scenes and sort mm. of ways of making the film work on a, on a larger scale for the audience, but also uh, being, you know, uh, aware of... The limitations of making an independent film. Hmm. Now, given given with the idea of the, the sort of the, the harrowing journey, but also this kind of one-on-one conflict um, between the officer and the and the immigrant. Um, what what were the main kind of storytelling challenges for the pair of you? 
Well, I mean, the main thing, it was, uh, Helen said, I can't remember who the quote was from, but I said, no one wants to see a film where you just bang the drum and say, refugees are people too, mm-hmm. or gay people are people too, or black people are people too. The best stories are the ones where you just tell a really good story, and it just so happens that the lead character is black or gay or a refugee or transgender or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that just makes the whole thing more real. It makes it more integrated into society, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and good stories are great stories, you know. The lead characters can be any faith or origin. Mm. Uh, can still be great stories. This is, I think, the problem Hollywood has is that sort of leading white male thing. It, you know, a lot of these films, you could just remove that and play, put anyone in the place. And if it was a good story, a good script, it would still, it would still work. Um, so yeah, so uh, that, you know that was a big thing for us was not making it preachy. I'm trying to uh, avoid politics quite a bit with it. You know, obviously it is a political subject, like you can't mm-hmm. avoid. It, but again, I don't want to because no one wants to be told they're right or they're wrong or, or or whatever. I think like like I said, it's about creating a story, a good story where you go on a journey, and that subtly changes your opinion because you empathise and engage with the character at the time. Hmm. No, that yes. was, I remember yeah. that. I remember that was a distinct experience when you watch something like um, Michael Winterbottom's In This World, where where the whole where, where yeah. having seen what people go through to get here and what what triggers them coming here, um, you kind of want to invite more. It isn't, and it's you know nobody's telling you that's what you should think at the end of the film, but it certainly is. A, you come to that conclusion, yeah, by yourself. It's yeah. not rammed down your throat. Yes. So, so I mean, but but keep but thinking of the the drama of that. Then, so obviously you're wanting to avoid being too preachy, but obviously you've still got to make a dramatic narrative, um, and you've got this combination of, you know, two people in a room, and you've also got this great expanse of thousands of miles to travel. To yeah. you know, to tell the story, you've got to get both the harrowing journey plus this these two people beginning to see each other's side of the story, but also each other's lives I suppose isn't it is what is what you're yes. revealing through these two characters as well so the story of the journey is also you know is revealing about Lena Heedy is it Heedy it's character Heedy. yeah yeah so yeah she's got her own stuff going on in her life obviously um so, and it's, it, it's always difficult to try and balance that because what obviously the refugee's been through is you know but not for anyone's counting what's worse mm. but you know he's definitely had a, a more harrowing time of the thing um yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, in all our research and stuff we did, um, you know, we went to Calais, we worked in the jungle, we met these people, we we talked to them, we we, we tried to understand, you know, what was your motivation for England? Because that's something a lot of these, you know, anti-immigration people go on about a lot, is they're yeah, here yeah. to steal jobs and money and things. And actually, <laughs> their second language is English. And that it's as simple as that. Or, or there's a community already in England uh, of people from that nation, and and it really is as simple as that. And and these people, you know, have travelled hundreds of thousands of miles across desert and uh, sea and land, and and then climbed on the back of trucks. And the audacity to say that these people are lazy and they're coming here to like steal our jobs, you know, mm. I find quite perplexing. I find, you know, if anything, they're entrepreneurs. It's the very definition of entrepreneur. They want a better life for themselves and their family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the kind of cards that were dealt in the world, not just the cards were dealt in life, is you can be born somewhere and you'll 
your life chances are simply not the same as someone born somewhere else. I mean, that's that's the way the system works. If you if you if if the people that seemingly get angry at people moving around the globe were to say, okay, we'll make it fairer, but you've got to share more of what you, some of what you've got, they'll soon they'll soon shut up. I get yeah. the impression. Uh, so uh, your lead your lead character is, uh, as I recognise him, Max from Humans, Ivan O. Jeremiah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, what was what was the casting like then for him, and obviously for um, for Lena's character of Wendy? Where 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 did that start for you? Uh, so yeah, so we had an amazing casting director on board called mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Manuel Perot. He's mm-hmm. done some great stuff like Moon and the Machine and and things. He's like a very cool British casting director. And yeah, sits on some wonderful wonderful films, uh, and he's very respected in the industry as well. We were really lucky to get him. He loved the script, and. Um, it, we, we sort of always knew it was going to hang on the lead. Um, so whilst we were developing the script, uh, the refugee crisis started to kick off. And um, one of the things I noticed, I think it was in Guardian, was that Lena was out in Greece, in Lesbos, um, helping the refugees uh, for the International Rescue Committee. Oh, okay. And I was just like, and anyway, this is Game of Thrones, height of fame. Hmm. And I was just like, is that a crazy idea to, like, <laughs> to go out there? Mm. You know, and everyone was like, uh, yeah, we could try, you know, because the general rule of casting is you start at the top and you work your way down. Mm-hmm. And then you find someone about fifth or sixth try. But, you know, Lena was like, well, Lena's agent as well is, is, is notoriously, like, a very powerful character in the industry. You know, he's um, he's not a fool. Mm-hmm. And, um uh, you know, he he read it and he loved it, and he passed it on to Lena. And uh, next thing you know, like we're meeting her in in one of these London like members clubs, like you know, with a hat hat in cap cap in hand, you know, mm. like please be in our movie. And she was just the most wonderful, lovely human being in the world. Uh, and she just made us all feel at ease. And she's just like, look, I love it. I'm on board. You know. Um, and yeah, it was just it was a real amazing experience for us and a real coup for the film um so from there we uh we wanted to then cast uh, her boss who we were really lucky again well not lucky you know we were just great script it all boils down to a great script i should revert back to that story the script was really good mm. and all the feedback we got you know, and that's and people say you know how do you get a good cast it's just write a good script you know <laughs> It took like two, three years of developing our one. You yeah, know, we never, we didn't put it out there till it was ready, um, and we knew when it was ready. It was just one of those things. Um, and when it was ready, my God, it was ready. You know, we got this amazing cast. Uh, and again, I was really worried about casting two people from Game of Thrones, but you know, I've always loved Ian's work and Ian Glenn. Uh, we're talking about yeah, Ian Glenn. Yeah, I'm just a massive fan. You know, I'd, I'd love him to read like. Nighttime stories to me, his voice is like <laughs> so brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And you know, and I said, Oh, can, can we do that? Uh, and they were like, Our cast director was just like, Yeah, you know, let's give it a go. And it'd be a good problem to have if we get him. Mm. Next thing you know, loves it, he's on board too. So, really, again, all testament to the quality of the, the script. Um, and also amazing human beings, you know, who cared about the subject. They weren't, neither of them were doing it for the money. It was that in any, in any way, I mean, there's, there's, I guess there's a kind of, there's a tightrope to walk there, isn't there? It's like, 
you, you, you're you're dealing with such a serious subject for the film that you you, you almost it almost is a it feels like it should be a prerequisite that the person playing playing roles in the film should at least give some sort of damn about what what the film's trying to say. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, no, because it's it translates onto camera, you know. Yeah, you can tell when people are just phoning it in for like you know, mega bucks just to appear for a day on a movie. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So, so going, but so then Ivanhoe Jeremiah plays the the sort of the guy the guy who we're focusing on to learn to help help the rest of us learn about what. what so obviously, it's, uh, Lena and Ian aside, it, it's his movie. You know, mm. he is uh, he's the refugee. Mm-hmm. You know, it's his journey we follow. Um, and I, I, like yourself, I'd seen Ivano on um, on Humans mm-hmm. and a few other bits and pieces. And, you know, we saw some people and um, he was just the one. He, he just has the most incredible eyes, you know, which, again, I think Humans really took advantage of. Of course, yeah. Uh, he just got this, like, sort of great, I wouldn't say great sadness, but there's it's like there's a, a story and a journey. And, and he's so good at projecting that. Um, for his face, you know, like a tiredness, um, which really like worked for our film. It was just because this guy had been through the wars, and um, he was just uh, he was just such a wonderful, lovely human being to work with. Um, uh, and was that was that was that a cat was that a cat was that an audition or was that a kind of offered the role and he read the script and liked it as well? No, so that that was an audition. Okay, but we didn't see many people. It was. You know, it's a sort of a short list. Um, and, and, you know, and instantly he was, he was the guy, you know, everyone, everyone in the room just it's like, that's our man. Um, but yeah, he's, and as a director, he's fantastic to work with. He's so relaxed, but, but very, very, uh, like engaged in the actual work. He went and got like a dialect coach for, um, the Eritrean he speaks in the, in the film. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, he was really helpful. We had the scenes with the other guys doing Eritrean and just, you know, he's a real master of accents. And, um, yeah, just a dedicated artist. Absolutely dedicated artist. And out of, just, out, just out of interest, thinking of those kind of incidents in, in, in the film, then how, how, did, how did you, as an English speaking director, sort of um, find directing a different language? You know, we had a, a guy there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, an advisor, you know, who was from Eritrea, and he was making sure off camera, uh, you know, that everything was as it should be. Mm-hmm. And I hope we've done the language justice. I really hope we have. But from your own point of view, though, how did it feel sort of suddenly being, I mean, I think that person there is reassuring, of course, but seeing a performance in a, in a foreign language? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's one of these things like uh, the nuance and the body and the face they say a lot, you know, Um, and you can tell if someone's not putting enough energy behind the line or Mm. it it, it does show, or if there's a, you know, uh, it was a difficult scene to shoot, you know, we'll say that, you Mm -hmm. know, and we did, you know, look at it a lot in the edit and make sure we got it right. Um, But yeah, you know, I I had to trust my instincts in, in that respect of what I was seeing, the the language of the body, as opposed to the the words themselves. So, for the benefits of the audience, then I mean, obviously, you've got you've got a long journey, but in terms of the shoot, then how far did that make the production travel? 
Ah, so <laughs> trade secrets. Um, so Calais, as far as we went. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, so so Calais, as far as you went, but just for the audience then, how far does the film want us to believe it's travelled? So Eritrea. Okay. So went to this amazing... Um, what's it? It's like a silicon mine in somewhere in the Midlands. Right. Uh, and it's just got this incredible, it's this looks like a desert, it's huge. And when we were there, there was another production doing like some Afghanistan style camp thing. Yeah. Um, and it just, it just really worked. And the nature of it being a quarry is it sort of gives you a 360 degree uh, sort of vista. Wow. Is, um, and yeah, it was this kind of very strange experience. Um, but it all worked. It was all very contained. Um, you know, we, we don't have any, like, sweeping wide shots of the desert or anything. Yeah. But it's not that kind of movie, you know. It's a very personal journey. And was uh, that was that kind of production decision part of the script writing, or was this part of... Did you end up with that as, as a solution once you'd raised the finance for the movie? Or well, was... yes. I mean, we didn't know where we were going to do it. I knew that there were places in England, because obviously I work in the industry in mm. separate, uh, separate jobs. Um yeah. So you sort of you are aware of what's going on. And I think I was working on The Crown at, at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to this guy and he was just like, oh, yeah, we've just been to this place. They'd actually turned it into Antarctica. They'd put, like, ice everywhere or something or, like, you know, snow business. Um, you know what they say? The camera never lies. And, mm. and that's it's such a myth, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and then you pour over VFX on top of that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of, yeah, it's just amazing. It's just about being creative. And I think this is part of the job of being a director is, is seeing a location and saying, no, no, we can make this work. You know, we can do this and we can be conservative and maybe if we don't show that angle or, put, you know, that, that's just part of the job is, is, is being creative and having an imagination. Mm. But, but, it's, um, but it's interesting, though, that, that a film that wants to travel across continents doesn't really go more than about a 50-mile radius. Yeah, I mean, of, of where you might live. It's a big part of that. You know, if we keep more stuff, if a tax break's a big part of that, and the more stuff we keep in England, the more beneficial it is for production. Got you me. know, your money will go further. Mm. Unit moves are huge killer. You know, flights, costs like that. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly what I mean. I'm saying, from a, for a low budget production, the less you can spend not shooting a film, the better. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Um, so, so you mentioned you low, low budget, but at the same time, it was you know it wasn't Hollywood budget. So. Of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, we, we we know. I think we know the difference. Um, but yeah, you, yeah. you you mentioned when you were talking about meeting Lena and and obviously Ian B, Ian Glenn being a um, a sort of a, a hero of yours. So, from a directing point of view, how do you keep from your point of view? How do you keep that? professional as it were for you as a director who's then got to be able to sort of obviously take on what they experience they bring to the shoot which is why you want them but also there's also what you want as the director and how how do you balance that where you kind of maybe there's a bit of a kind of deference at first in terms of these sort of stars in inverted commas coming on board yeah. with the film well i mean you know i'm going to tell you what i tell everyone who says they want to be a director and that's um the biggest secret is just hire good actors and they do like 90% of the work for you. Okay. You only really have to direct bad actors, to be honest with you. Like, it's only when you're trying to like coax a performance out of someone when it gets really intense and, you know, when they can't get it and they're not listening to your notes or, or they just can't act. Hmm. I've had that times. Um, 
and those two. I mean, Lena and Neil in, they've got very different styles. Yeah. Ian's very it's like theatrical, hits the spot. Oh, I say theatrical is in like stage, you know, like mm. it's his marks every time. He, you know, once he's figured out uh, what he's going to say and how he's going to say it, and you agree, you just get the same thing over and over again. Whereas Lena's a bit more of a moment, you know, she really gets into that character and becomes that character in that moment. And sometimes, you know, you get different things, but it's all interesting and lovely. And, um, but yeah, just different styles of acting, really. Um, well, in that in that sense, then, so what? If if Lena's style is, is is like you say, sort of in the moment, then what what was she able to bring that surprised you about Wendy? It's just it's it's more of an honest, I think, performance. Mm-hmm. Saying Ian's isn't honest, but Ian's, you get to where you want it, and it's amazing. And you know you're going to get it, and it's like clockwork. Whereas Lena just goes deep, deep into her soul every time she opens up. It's very, um, it's a very beautiful thing to watch, actually. Now, um, without without giving away any spoilers, um, but I'd, I'd like to know what for you is like the from a production point of view, um, what you feel is like the the, the, the best achievement in terms of uh, what you're able to get into the camera. Um, about this film, that when you were when you and when, when you and Helen were looking at the pages and you're talking talking to your producer about how you're going to make it, which were the kind of like right there's the, there's the big mountains, there's the little molehills. So that of the big mountains you had to climb in terms of what you had to achieve to mm. to make this film. Can you can you shed a light on any kind of? Yeah. So t- two things bring to mind. The yeah. thing I had to fight for the most budget wise mm-hmm. was the um, uh, the boat scene. Uh, where they're on the the Mediterranean and obviously it's a really important scene because um, you know so many people make this journey and it's it's really harrowing and everything but of course when you're on a boat in the ocean uh, suddenly you need like four marine coordinators and four safety boats and things and it just like the money goes crazy understandably because it's a very dangerous thing you know we've got a boat full of extras and on like a dinghy you know like not even a good boat like a real you know, terrible, terrible inflatable boat, which these guys did use to sort of cross the Mediterranean. Um, and, you know, it wasn't because no one wanted to do it. It's just it's a big cost. Um, but, you know, we had a whip round or whatever and and we made it work. You know, we moved some stuff about in the budget and um, we got it. And I'm so pleased we do because we had the most beautiful day. We were in, out in Yarmouth and it felt like the Mediterranean. The sun was out and you just can't, you know, that, that sort of value – you can't, you can't fake that. It's the ocean and it's the boat and it's just, it's big. It makes the film feel, well, you know, more international, really. Well, I suppose, I suppose if, you, if, you, if you want to really convey the danger that people are willing to overcome, then the more you accurately can show that, the more people will, yeah. be, will believe the kind of central message you're trying to sort of give over with this film, I suppose. Hmm. Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's a tough, it's a real tough sort of thing to direct as well because, you know, there's a bit of a panic and people are freaking out and and it's a very small space and it's just, it was almost like trying to capture little moments of Ivano through the other people's panic. Um, and obviously, like, continuity-wise, trying to get all those guys to do the same thing every time when the boat's rocking and... It was yeah, it was very it was very difficult one to edit. I seem to remember, um, but uh, amazing. I'm really pleased we got it. And the other thing as well, which was 
which again was one of the money shots, was uh, we went to Pinewoods, the underwater stage, and you've probably seen the poster of the guy sinking. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I won't say what the scene's about or whatever. Um, but yeah, that was, again, like a childhood dream to be making a film at Pinewood Studios. Um, and there was a couple of scenes we had, one where a set sinks and another one where he plummets through the water, which is the poster, and... Uh, just wow, just, um, just <laughs> really, really, really crazy stuff. Really. And um, how, and from, from a kind of director point of view, go, sort of going into that sort of bigger, grander, more ambitious sort of production values, how, 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 how do you kind of wrestle control of it? Because obviously there's a big difference between getting people in a room, make, making their mark, and you get, you know, the, the, the close up, the mid shot, the, you know, the big, the, the, the shot from the other perspective and all that. Whereas obviously when it's a set piece and it's the mechanics of it as well as the, as well as the performance, how did that feel? Well, yeah, I mean, I could, again, I, I, you know, I work on these big Hollywood films quite mm. a lot. So mm. I'm very used to how bigger sets are run and how things happen. Mm -hmm. So I've sort of got the understanding of that um, from a practical point of view. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, again, it's, you know, the, the crew and everyone, the people I've worked for and everyone's, everyone's sort of tried and tested and, and we're a bit of a family really. And I'm not an egotistical director by any means. Like this whole director is God thing. I absolutely hate. I think you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. Um, and I'm always up for suggestions, always open, you know, to other opinions and things. And at the end of the day, you know, my job is really just being able to understand the film as a whole. And if anything changes on set that day is the ramifications of those changes and the, the ability to watch that film in my head and then adapt accordingly. Um, and also answer like a million questions a day, but instantly that's the other thing, you know, everyone asks the question <laughs> is should this be blue or red? And you've just got to go blue. You know, you can't go, oh, can I go away and think about that? <laughs> so Sorry, go I was going to say. Uh, so you, you you talk about containing the production to to largely the UK, but you hmm. you obviously um, felt there was a need to, uh, or, or there was there was benefit to shooting in Calais as well. Uh, so yeah, what, what, stage, Calais, what stage was we Calais at when you went and shot there? Out of interest, so we went to Dunkirk actually, not Calais. Okay, Calais is completely locked down, hmm. obviously. Um, because of the refugee crisis, of and they don't stop settling there. The police are a bit uh, highly strung there as well. Mm. So, yeah, no, I've, I interviewed um, Jason Wingard, who did a film called uh, In Another Life, and he, I think he did a bit of guerrilla shooting in the in the in the jungles of Calais. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's um, lots of horror stories about people having their cameras smashed by the police over things like that. Mm. So go on then. So where did you, where did you choose to shoot um, them? Yeah. So we ended, we ended up going to Dunkirk, which is the next town down and you know, they've got ports and things and ferries, but to be honest, most of the ferry footage we got and stuff was stock footage because, um, all the UK ferry companies don't obviously, uh, their business is, is affected massively by, uh, yeah, people trying to, you know, get on lorries and things. It slows down their, departure times things and uh, and then Sandy Ray said you know look we just we can't be involved in this film because it actually costs us loads of money you know which is completely understandable mm. um so you know and there's plenty of stuff we made work and you know there's lots of things on the beaches and stuff and the actual boat you see uh, there's a couple of scenes where he's looking at the ferry out to sea you know that was just VFX um 
so yeah, so it's just again trying to be clever with what you've got. Of course. And not, have, not going, oh my god, if I can't see a real ferry, I'm not filming this shot. You know, you've just got to <laughs> got to go with it. You've got to make it work. Now, now this is a question I usually ask people when it's about a documentary. But given given you like you say you've, you've spent there was two years developing the script with um, with with Helen and um, and it's and it's obviously. It's it's drawing on a very real situation that's happening, you know, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, what for you in terms of your perception of of what's been going on in terms of the refugee crisis in inverted commas that that, that we read about in the news and what you now understand from having gone through the process of sort of developing a script and making a film about it? Um, oh yeah, I mean, it's this whole thing about cycles of news mm-hmm. and. Uh, at the time when we were developing the script and everything, it was really, it was going crazy in Syria. And there was just this huge sort of backlash against that. And um, also this great exodus of people. Like I think they said not, um, as many people hadn't moved across the planet since World War Two or something crazy like that. It was just absolutely insane. But yet no one really cared. And um, the one, and it's still happening. You know, people are still leaving all these countries and yeah. people are still flying in the Mediterranean every day. But no one's writing about it anymore. No one's, you know, we've got Brexit to distract us now or whatever the hell it will be next week. Um, but it's still happening and it's real sad. And it's uh, one of the biggest things I struggled with the whole thing was, was the lack of humanity. Um, and if I can do anything with this film, I'd just like to humanize these people just a little bit more. Like I said, give them names and faces and just hopefully bring some compassion that way. Um, because the system is just so cold and not designed on on that, on that level at all. Um, but, uh, you know, another big thing, you know, unfortunately, is our little bit of channel um, buys us a lot of ignorance. Mainland Europe, you know, really took on a huge amount during the refugee crisis. Like, you know, like I think we took on like 5% of what they dealt with. Yeah. Um, it was nothing, and um, you know we're sort of there going, oh, we did our bit and that, and rubbing our hands together, or whatever. And um, still going on, still happening. It's not, um, it's not going to go away any anytime soon. And I really think, I mean, my my opinion, my conclusion I've come to through everything I've seen and researched is that we really need to spend more money in sorting the countries of origin out in the first place. Um, to sort of kind of make them better places to live, really. Uh, make them more stable, you know, better democracy, um, just more jobs, more opportunity. Because the problem with the West is, you know, we've got that whole brain drain thing going on where we just take the best of everyone out of every country for our own benefit. Yeah. And leave these other countries with, with no one, you know, who can sort of build that industry or... Or, or technology or whatever it's just very no 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 the 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 the, the, um, the 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 game's fixed isn't it i mean i remember i remember doing some studying some stuff about um just the way the you know economics work you know where the places that have got them the least the least to gain get the least for like raw materials that they might have <laughs> to hand and the countries that 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 buy and invest in those raw materials add value to them, i.e. they make computers, they make cars and all kinds of other things, 
and then they sell them and their economies prosper because they're dealing in the added value part of capitalism, not the uh, not the actual real resources that make the world go round. So yeah, it's top heavy. It's yeah. it's really is the whole thing's top heavy. Uh, you know, without getting too political, you know, we live yeah. in a. No, but this is this is. I think it's. I mean, it's. it's money is owned by a handful of families, and it's. Yeah. Unless yeah. it starts actually coming back down to the people at the bottom, and the people at the bottom include the governments, they're still scrabbling around for a little bit of money with us. Um, then it's always going to be uh, completely um, messed up. And and I heard a statistic, but we're actually the gap between rich and poor is now bigger than it was in medieval times, which is frightening. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. I remember reading the book Affluenza, and um, in 1979, the gap between the richest and poorest in both the UK and in America, so two obviously wealthy nations, had, had never been narrower. But since Thatcher and Reagan got into power and neoliberalism took mm. its hold of capital, started to sort of warp what we thought of as capitalism, um, that gap has only grown again and again. This was not... So that again, sorry. Unbridled capitalism. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of it, it, you know I remember the 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 you know eleven years ago in the crash and there was this feeling that we we're going to have to sort of temper you know rapid capitalism and and have a new version of it, but it didn't actually take long for for the kind of narrative to be <laughs> when do we get back to normal and you're like wow normal just nearly brought the earth to a halt. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and no one, no one was brought. To justice, either. This is the annoying thing. No. Well, anyway, look. Let's. Uh, that, they're, they're, they're the big macro things going on. You've got a film called Flood, which looks at sort of yeah. takes it down to a human level um, in terms of how this world may or may not function for better or for worse. Um, mm. So, when can people see it and how? Uh, so it's coming out on the twenty first of June. Mm-hmm. Uh, Curzon are distributing, so most of the Curzon cinemas. Uh, there's also special screenings all around the country on the 17th. Uh, and they will be beaming a live Q&A with Lena and myself uh, and some members of the international refugee community. Um, and I think Christian Guru Murphy is comparing it. Yeah, so you, what, you're holding like a panel, aren't you, on the 17th? Yes, yeah, so a panel, yeah. Sorry, and it's not live. It's, it's recorded, sorry, and then beamed into the cinemas after the screening. Brilliant. Well, look, we'll put some uh, links in the show notes so people can find that out. And it just gives me to say thank you very much, Anthony, for coming on the podcast to tell us about the flood. Not a problem. Anytime, Stuart. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. The music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. It's time. 
for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Oh,